0: Welcome to LA Opera Podcasts. You're listening to a discussion with Dr. Mitchell Morris, Professor of Musicology at UCLA, about the myth and music of Orpheus and Eurydice, recorded on March 11th, 2018. Good afternoon. My name is Stacy Brightman, and I am the very fortunate person who gets to be the Vice President of Education and Community Engagement at LA Opera. And I have one chief responsibility today, which is to say on behalf of the entire LA Opera family, how honored we are to be here at the beautiful Getty Villa and with these extraordinary scholars and curators and, and to learn and to expand our minds and souls with you. Uh, on behalf of our General Director, Placido Domingo, of course, our music director, who we will be hearing from soon, James Conlon, and our president, Christopher Kelsch. Again, thank you to the Getty Villa for making this possible today. So I (laughs) wanna give a good one. I wanna bring to the stage one of our most beloved scholars that we get to work with at LA Opera, Dr. Mitchell Morris. He's a professor of music and musicology at UCLA, has been there since I believe 1997. Uh, before that, was at McGill University. He's one of those brilliant minds that synthesizes so many different disciplines. Um, you will see in your description that he's a specialist in fin de siècle, Russian and Soviet music, 20th century American music, opera, rock, soul, gay and lesbian studies. He's also the uh, Uh, co-editor of the Oxford Handbook of the American Musical. Who wouldn't love this kind of mind? Um, He's also an artist. He's uh, a librettist. And he's here to share some insights with us. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Mitchell Morris.
1: Good afternoon. The title I've given myself to work with today is After Orpheus. Now, to be fair, what I mean by the title primarily is After the Orpheus, the Orfeo e dice of Christoph Willibald von Gluck. Um, but it's after a lot of different Orphei, if you will. Um, We already know from the talks this morning that we have in the figure of Orpheus, in the myth of Orpheus, we have a multifaceted story that takes on particular incarnations depending on what aspect of the complex myth a particular rendition is interested in in focusing on. Um, The really wonderful example for this for me, which is an example I've taught, comes with the first really long literary versions of the story, which of course, as you already know, are from the Georgics and then from the Metamorphoses. Now, Virgil has priority, and it's an interesting situation because this story of Orpheus is a kind of a side. The real point is Aristeus, whose bees have died and he's very stressed out and wants to know what happened. So he has to go find the answer and it turns out that it's his crime, uh, that he had actually attempted to abduct and rape Eurydice on her wedding day. She fled, she was bitten or stung by a snake, depending on the translation you use, and died, so it's on him. I did see a version of the Georgics once that sort of had suddenly Aristophanes saying, "I." often Aristeas say, I only wanted to try on her shoes. I didn't want anything else. But, you know, it's actually a really serious crime. But of course, one that happens in Greek myth everywhere, where it's, if you're a nymph, you're almost certain to need really fast running shoes because some (laughs) god is going to try to rape you any minute. In the same token, though, when we think about Greek mythology in general, it's also worth remembering that the story of Orpheus, particularly its bloody end, is not uncharacteristic of Greek myth. In fact, if you think about Greek myth, if you think about, oh, I don't know, the flaying of Marcius, or the invention of the lyre, or any number of stories, for the ancient Greeks, it always seemed like the birth of music seemed to take place in the vicinity of some unspeakable physical atrocity. The birth of music is always at the cost of dismemberment, torture, and murder in one way or another. It's an interesting problem that we could spend the entire time talking about. There's something really important in how they're thinking about that. But so there's Orpheus the singer, the one who can persuade the animals, make the rocks cry, do things like this. There's Orpheus in his aspect as the husband who seeks Eurydice and brings her back or really doesn't. And there is the Orpheus who is ripped to pieces by the Thracian women, uh, but who has an afterlife. Now, Ovid, one of whose main goals seems to have been to embarrass Virgil, because Virgil, you know, is prude. Virgil is really approved. He's very tight assed and very, very, very <laughs> inhibited. And so his Orpheus is such, so you know, he doesn't even sweat. He just glows like Rita Hayworth. <laughs> um, so Ovid, in his retelling, is interested in finding every salacious tradition and foregrounding it, which is why we get the man-boy love and the sexual frustration, and then the beautiful little detail that is important to my story. When the Maynads threw the head of Orpheus into the river, it floated downstream, still singing. That's really important because it's one of the things that matters to my beloved 19th century, which is the afterwards part of Orpheus that I propose to discuss. We'll be touching on some things you've seen already, but I won't necessarily be showing them. You will see Gustave Moreau make a reappearance. You will not see Courtois, even though it's a beautiful painting. What I propose to do then is talk about, first of all, Romanticism's dead Orpheus and why it matters. Now, it's true. There are paintings ad infinitum of Orpheus and Eurydice. There are other versions of Orpheus. But I want to focus on the severed head. The severed head is an important symbol because of what it does in connection with romantic aesthetics and what it symbolizes about the nature of poetic vision. The first thing to keep in mind is that you can conceive of romanticism as in some ways an attempt to undo an important aspect of the Enlightenment. That aspect is what we might call the disenchantment of the world. In Enlightenment eyes, the primary job of an intellectual, well, of almost any cultural figure, was to rub away superstition like you would scrub a pot. You get rid of all of that superstitious nonsense that we associate with religion and magic and all of this sort of stuff that is not clear reason. By doing so, for many people, like Chateaubriand, you end up making the world flat and stale. What you've done is you've taken that sparkling water of life and you've let it sit till it tastes boring and dead. (laughs) That you've removed all of the magic from the world means that you're desperate. What are you going to do? This is going to be a problem all the way into the 1950s, I believe, when fashionable magazines will discuss the death of God, what they mean is actually the disenchantment of the world, a world where there is no magic, a world where there is no inspiration, where there is no power of something greater, where there is nothing numinous around anymore, where everything is pedestrian, Romantic aesthetics objects to that, romantic aesthetics uh, rejects that completely. One of the signs of this is a new way of thinking about pleasure. Now, if you're a good 18th century philosopher, you tend to operate on a fairly binary notion of what good and bad and fun and awful are. That is to say, we like pleasure, we hate pain, right? Right? That's right, right? No, we watch TV, we know that's not right. That is so not right. Quite often, various kinds of discomfort are fairly irresistible to us, and this is a problem for aesthetics. Why, says someone like Edmund Burke, could we possibly like a roller coaster? What is the virtue of going, of being dragged by your teenage children to see Saw Part 79? Why do we do this? This is, I know I'm couching it hilariously, but it's actually a serious problem. How is it possible to derive aesthetic satisfaction out of things which are, dispassionately speaking, unpleasant? How can you sit there and endure those things? How is it that in your youth you might have been willing to stand by a speaker that was emitting a damaging level of sound? How is it that you sat through Siegfried? Really? You know, I actually like Siegfried, but it takes a lot of Zitzfleisch, no question about it. How is it that you are willing to tolerate all kinds of things? Would you be willing to go to a festival of nothing but Stockhausen and Boulez? Plenty of people with. How do you account for this? The answer for 18th century aesthetics was to say, well, there's more than one kind of pleasure, clearly. There is the kind of aesthetic satisfaction we get out of pretty things, nice things. We're gonna call it the beautiful. But then there's our pleasure at all the giant, scary, inimical, harmful things, like mountains or roller coasters or horror films, or, you know, really, really intense um, a, a, a chicken bindaloo is a good example, something that will hurt you. <laughs> How do we like the things that hurt us? Well, it's because that's a different aesthetic experience. It's one that Burke will, call, will describe as the sublime. And Kant and everybody else will be following him. Now, here is a quick version of the 19th century, and here is what happens to music. In the beginning of the century, there is a difference between the beautiful and the sublime. By the end of the century, there is not a beautiful anymore. The beautiful has been taken over by the sublime, and all that is left is the merely pretty. And this is why we suddenly get a division between so-called art and so-called popular music. Popular musics tend to take over the job of being pretty. Serious composition is usually interested in the sublime at risk of their reputations otherwise. If you're a composer after Wagner, you need to write giant, hard, throbbing, distended, humongous, difficult music or you won't be taken seriously. And we will see how that happens. Orpheus, dead Orpheus, is the perfect figure for this. He's already dead. He's already met a horrific fate of bruising dismemberment and murder, and yet he sings. Yet he still sings. And what he sings now is stuff that is beyond the grave. So in his very figure, he represents this transcendental, sublime, magical figure who is not incidentally a musician. How is this not gonna be irresistible? Not just for musicians, but for other artists. For you see, the status of music had undergone a substantial revision in our favor. All musicians love the philosophy of Arthur Schopenhauer more than anybody else, because Arthur Schopenhauer is the only one who recognizes that we're better than everything else, and I'll explain that. Immanuel Kant th- thought very poorly of music. He thought when you come to the arts, well, it's poetry, obviously. That's the greatest art. But then painting and sculpture, are really good music, it's somewhere around cooking, You know, it's evanescent, it goes away, and besides, your neighbors can sing really loud and you can hear it, he didn't like his neighbors, they all sang hymns very loudly. And so music is actually not very important. In the Kantian system, music really, it may as well be roast beef. That's pretty much all that you can get. By Schopenhauer's time, music is in fact the best of the arts, and here's why. Schopenhauer believes music copies things, right? He had never seen abstract art. So that's an interesting story in itself. So painting's a copy of something in the real world, right? So poetry describes things in the real world, right? Okay, so art is a copy of the real world. The real world is a projection of the stuff that is somewhere in back of reality. The ultimate reality makes this that we see sort of like poking against a sheet. So that's the world, and art copies it. What does music copy? What do you do? It's, oh, emotions. That's very convenient because Kant vibrations, music doesn't copy vibrations. Music is vibrations. Music, Kant thinks, copies feelings. But feelings, because they're completely interior and are intangible, are for him. That's the reality. You know, that sheet that's between you and the ultimate reality that you can't get to? You can through introspection but that's what music is copying, which means that music is exactly as real and valuable as the world we live in. As the concrete material world, music is just as good. It's like an alternative reality. It's like a form of magic. Because of that, music, for for Schopenhauer, possesses amazing truth value. So when a composer writes music and when a performer plays it, that's really true. That's true more than a word can ever be. A statement about something being true, that's true. But music, oh, that's deep truth. That's interior truth. That's ultimately reality as truth. And that's why music is the best magic of all. Now, what Kant is doing, what Schopenhauer is doing is formalizing something that was already really prominent in the rest of romantic aesthetics. And we're gonna see this in a very brief tour. I want to touch on a different genre than opera because I thought it's good to sort of expand our sort of frame of references a little bit. I wanna talk about instrumental music and I wanna talk about a specific genre. It's called the tone poem and what it is in effect is a one movement work of instrumental music, usually for orchestra, that you are supposed to listen to while you are thinking about other things. This seems terrible for those of you who took the music appreciation in college, <laughs> or you're supposed to listen to abstract forms and other such nonsense. Um, but in fact, someone like Franz Liszt, who you see here, would say, no, when you listen to my tone poem called Orpheus, You need to think about Orpheus. You need to have all that you know about him, paintings, poems, stories, everything you can think about, including the look, that you know about Orpheus, you need to bring to this because the meaning of the piece is not in the piece, but it's not in you. It's somewhere between the two. It's how you react to the piece that may, that makes the piece work. So, some tone poems, Mazepa, for instance, is a poem about action. So you're talking about a Cossack hero who's strapped to a horse and sent on exile and various triumphs eventually. A poem, a, a tone poem like De Ideala or the Ideals, is based on a big French poem, and so on and so on. In the case of Orpheus, it's just the name. It's the myth in a kind of loose set of associations. And what we get musically is an important sign of how this particular image is developing. Now, I must run back to the piano, leave this up for a second, and play you two things to demonstrate part of what's going on. The music that we were used to listening to from the 18th century, if you take Handel, if you take Haydn or Mozart, even into the the 19th century, if you take Beethoven, tends to work on a set of principles that gives you the impression that you are going somewhere. You feel like you're going in a particular direction and you're reaching goals. This is part of what is really important about the kind of music we call common practice tonality. It works like this. I'm going to go play you a really simple progression behind the, the screen, and you will hear that it feels like we are going towards a goal that we reach, so that we land on something that sounds like the musical version of a period. Oh, if I don't take my phone, I can't see the piano. Whoops. <laughs> Now, I am on the piano, and I am playing you a simple progression. And that's our goal. Notice what happens if I don't finish. Supposedly, some friends of Mendelssohn did that to him once, and after 15 minutes, he had to come downstairs and play... (laughs) Contrast that with this kind of an effect. I'm going to play four chords that are related to each other in a very different way. this way. Now, what I did with the first version is I played things in what we call common practice tonality. Those last odd-sounding chords that I played were based in a very different way of getting around the 12 notes of the chromatic scale. Those are things that we habitually call third relations because they move in a slightly different pattern. The 19th century is all about that. It's all about finding ways of dodging that directed, progressive, goal-oriented style I played you first. It's a way of dodging directness in favor of suggestion, in favor of shading, in favor of, well, in favor of subjunctive moods. It's the way that 19th century makes things seem as if quite frequently and that is one of the things at stake in the opening of Liszt's tone poem from 1853 called Orpheus. What you're gonna hear in this opening is you'll hear these chords related by that peculiar system I was showing you alternating with a double harp effect to give you a kind of super guitar, a super lyre that's gonna be the representation of Orpheus. It'll, you'll hear it twice and on the third iteration we will relax into an actual melody. What you won't get in this is any sense of stress whatsoever. The piece, Liszt said, was about the ideals of Orpheus as they're sort of maintained, even surrounded by evil in various ways. And in this, he was being influenced by French philosophy. But what the philosophers say is less important, arguably, than what this sound makes it. Let's have the first example, please. First chord double harp effect. This is one of the first times you get this much harp in these. cycled up, ratcheted up in different transpositions. That's really characteristic of this piece, in fact. There's a lot of repetition. There's very little going anywhere. We sort of do a lot of motion, but we never seem to be heading to a particular place. And that's also really common in this particular kind of music. Um, You'll, in fact, see um, at the very end that the same kind of principles are going on. We do come to a conclusion, but it's an attenuated conclusion. We're never actually resting in a solid still place. Very different from Beethoven, who loves to give you the ending and then pound it into the ground. If you think of the end of the fifth symphony, there's a reason for that. But he really is interested in endings and in a particular kind of force or violence. Liszt is not interested in that right now. What he's interested in here is something much more watercolory. Let's have the next example. This is the end of the tone poem. is because we're interested in the image, not the image in motion. We're actually basically trying to look at what is a musical attempt to represent a kind of painting or a drawing. And that's unusual. Paintings will sometimes try to incorporate motion. Music often is not very good at representing images. It's not very good at representing images, and it's unusual. I think. This is sonically very much like these pictures of the head of the because the head isn't doing anything
0: anymore, the head
1: simply is. And there's a way in which this piece is much more about being than it is ever about doing. can say that actually this is gonna work. This was, incidentally, the favorite piece of Liszt's son-in-law, otherwise known as Richard Wagner. Wagner thought this was Liszt's best piece by, any, by all stretch of the imagination. And Wagner matters in this because Wagner's reading not only of Liszt but also of things concerned with Greek tragedy and Orpheus is very much on point. As far as Wagner on Greek tragedy, he actually wrote quite a bit about it, but even more, he wrote as more than one person because he was one of the sources that Nietzsche used when he was writing the, the Birth of Tragedy out of the Spirit of Music. That was Nietzsche's first book, and he wrote it while he was basically seriously infatuated with Richard Wagner and Cosima Wagner. The 19th century is a great period for these very complicated relationships between three people, where it's really clear they're each in love with the other two. Brahms, Clara, and Robert, same way. Um, but Wagner, Nietzsche, and Cosima were very clearly in this intense erotic relationship and Nietzsche used Wagner's ideas very much to build this darker version of Greek tragedy. It is, in fact, very unwinkelmanian, because Nietzsche says, why did the Greeks need this? Because they needed negativity in their lives. They needed some sort of negativity out of all this sweetness and light to sort of show you that the real world is this grim, horrible thing that looks like Schopenhauer's will, where everything is devoured and recycled. And so that dark side of Orpheus becomes really important. Uh, thanks to Wagner and Nietzsche. This is also part of the influence of Berklin. I will actually mention the Island of the Dead that you saw earlier. Berklin was so obsessed with that painting that he made dozens of versions of it. There are actually lots of those those particular paintings for this reason. Now, the artists who matter for my purposes are really two more than any others. Uh, The first is the French painter Gustave Moreau who we will turn to next. Um, Let me sort of head on. This is a self-portrait from 1850. This is not his customary style. This is not the style for which Moreau is chiefly known. This is the style for which Moreau is known. Um, a, uh, A girl with the head of Orpheus. I think the painting is called The Death of Orpheus. This is the first one of the paintings you will see where we have the lyre as a platform. Um, This is a really common motif in the late 19th century. You saw it with the Courtois as well. Orpheus is almost always on his lyre. Now, I want to suggest something to you about this. The fact that he's on the lyre means that the strings are like a kind of supplementary larynx, basically. If his head is on the lyre, then his throat is still exposed, and so he's actually kind of becoming an Aeolian harp. If the wind blows past him, he sings again. And the Aeolian harp, by the way, is one of the prime tropes of romantic poetry because it suddenly reconceives nature as a kind of quasi-supernatural force. So what's animating him potentially can only be realized if Orpheus is not detached from his lyre. The lyre also then is a prosthetic body and that's an important aspect of what's going on in this painting as well. You see the sort of classicizing, it's a beautiful sort of style. This was Moreau's typical style, and you see this style and also the androgyny of the head in any number of paintings from this period, the 1860s. You see it, for instance, in Jason and the Sphinx. You see it in, uh, sorry, in Edifice and Sphinx. You see it in Jason and Medea, in fact, as well. You also see things like this in this, now, this is not an Orpheus painting. This is, I hope you recognize, Salome. Um, it is close kin to the one that's at your competitor, the hammer, uh, and it's a really important set of paintings, not least because it's the Salome painting, in the hammer particularly, that was immortalized in Huisman's famous novel of the decadence, Aux Rebours, where there's a whole passage discussing this particular art. I submit to you that disembodied heads in this period start to become, they start to become one. And that anytime you see an Orpheus, it's just like those Roman mosaics, you're also seeing Christ or John the Baptist or a religious figure in these ways. Moreau is important because he establishes this tradition so strongly, not only through the force of his paintings, but because of his literary representation. It also helps, I think, that if you look at a painting like this, You can tell that it's not altogether that far from the pre-Raphaelite brotherhood. This matters hugely because the pre-Raphaelites had especially close connections to Brussels, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Um, Just to sort of let the pre-Raphaelites stand in with a moment, here's a John William Waterhouse painting from 1900 of nymphs finding the head of Orpheus, down here floating on his lyre again. Um, the person that I want to end with, though, and I want to spend the rest of our time on, really, is the Belgian painter Jean Delville. Jean Delville is a fascinating painter because he was not just a painter and a theoretician. He wrote a lot about art. Um, he also was a major theosophist. If I had world enough in time, you would be stuck listening to me now on about Madame Blavatsky for quite some time because she's really important in the arts in the late 19th century. Um, Delville was a member of the Theosophical Society, one of the Theosophical Societies. They were like Baptists in the way they they fissioned. Um, so she, he was a member of the Theosophical Society and a painter who was very, very close to the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Um, in fact... Which one was it? Burne Jones actually visited uh, Brussels all the time and was really close friends with Delville. Delville was particularly interested in philosophical painting. So among the symbolist artists, he tended to be very, very heavy on uh, on Attic content, as well well on religious and, and, and philosophical content. Here is a wonderful painting. This is from. I love his hair. It just it it inspires awe in me. This is from 1944. He lived to be in his 80s, and so this is really late painting. I think he died the year the next year, in fact. Um, and he's trying for a slightly prophetic quality. He does that a lot in his paintings. This is his greatest Orpheus. This is his head of Orpheus. It's in the Brussels Royal Museum, I believe. And again, you've got the sort of classic pose on the lyre. I love the way that you can sort of see that he lets it sort of melt into into the water there. It's a wonderful misty sort of painting. It helps that this is actually in Delville's repertory in mind connected to a number of paintings he did on Wagnerian subjects because he was a great Wagnerian too. Here is his Tristan and Isolde. They are actually both there, although it's hard to sort of tell. Here is one of his Parsifals. This is from 1894, in fact. Um, But the thing that matters most for my purposes is that he was close friends with the most theosophically, one of the most, sorry, one of the five most theosophically-minded composers of all time. That composer was the Russian composer, Alexander Nikolaevich Skryabin. Uh, Now, Scriabin had spent a great deal of time in Western Europe. Um, Unlike most people who had to leave the Tsarist empire because of politics, he had to leave it for a scandal. Um, He was kind of handsy and couldn't keep his hands to himself with his students, and he ended up throwing over his first wife for a second wife, which caused so much. His first wife was a piano virtuoso who abjectly continued to perform his works even after he dumped her. Um, So he took up with another woman and made himself such a social pariah, he had to flee to Paris and Switzerland. Switzerland was easy, his dad was a diplomat, so he was able to spend much time, about six or seven years, in Western Europe before he dared go back to Russia. In fact, in this period, he turned himself from essentially a kind of very lightweight uh, piano virtuoso composer into a really serious composer. But that journey is itself quite interesting. First of all... Alexander Scriabin, I present to you. Fascinating man. He was about five foot two. He was barely able to reach an octave with his hand. He was incapable of standing still. Apparently, conversations with him were always interrupted by pirouettes and moves and dances and things like this. He also, as a graduating as a graduate of the Moscow Conservatory, took the second gold medal in his year in performance. The first went to Rachmaninoff, who had hands like this. So Scriabin was a really significantly gifted pianist. And he started, his contemporaries didn't take him seriously because they thought he was a piano composer like Paderewski or someone like that. Can we have the the next example, please? This is the opening of his very, very beautiful 1890s piano concerto. Oh wait a minute! no can you go to the next example? I'm sorry. Skip this one. <laughs> we should have a piano. Oh, look at this! This is the second movement of this piano concerto. It's just the prettiest thing. It doesn't do anything difficult. It's not sublime. It's pretty. In fact, it's so pretty. That his contemporaries scoffed. They're like, ah, oh, he's not really a composer. This is just frivolous stuff that they do for pops concerts. It's a theme in variations. The orchestra gives pretty theme. Now the thing about the concerto is the piano and the orchestra they get along really well. And if you know 19th century charity, that's not how they're supposed to work. The soloist is the heroic individual almost always. The orchestra is the crowd, and he must prevail like Napoleon. But for Scriabin, really, the orchestra is more like his adoring aunts, who loved the little shrinka, and loved everything he did. So the purpose of the orchestra much like Orpheus' adoring audiences, because if you don't think that this role of the soloist is an Orphic position, I got another thing for you. That's very much what's going on already. We are thinking about these things as being together. Now, the way that this actually triumphs for Scriabin comes after he's actually spent a great deal of time studying philosophy. He reads the philosophy of Schopenhauer's competitors like Fichte, He ends up reading Nietzsche, because everybody read Nietzsche in those days. He read about things more than he read them. In Russia of those days, there was a popular genre called the thick journals. If you can imagine that something like The Atlantic plus Harper's plus a couple of other magazines were like this thick every month, filled with articles, that's really, these were very common. Skraven read those and picked up information from other people instead of like reading a lot of deep philosophy. Um, But he started with philosophy and moved into theosophical circles. And as his work developed, his musical style got more and more sublime until with his truly great tone poem slash concerto, because it's both, Prometheus from 1910, we're not even using the kinds of chords that you are accustomed to hearing. I better not play it. It's really too dark back there. And so I want to close with two things. I want you to look at this. This is the frontispiece for the score. This is a drawing that was done by Jean Delville. This is obviously Orpheus. This is also, notice the lyre is superimposed upon the sun. This is also Apollo. Oh, and since we have the title, this is also Prometheus all three of them layered together in a theosophical landscape with lotus blossoms, galaxies, Solomon's seal, which is an alchemical version of the Star of David, and all kinds of other occult symbology to represent this. Here is the opening of the piece. Notice how it starts in this gloomy work. In fact, it's really hard to say precisely what this harmony is. It's more like a cloud of pitches from which things emerge. Just out of, like, out of mist. administration is Has gone as mystical as it's going to go. What you will see in the 20th century is various kinds of explorations of the things that have been tossed out for consideration in earlier centuries. In fact, you will see not only the things that we've already heard about, you'll see a few other operas in very peculiar post symbolist ways. You will see popular music. You will see songs by jazz composers, by singer songwriters. The topic of Orpheus will continue to be a really rich one, and I particularly predict we'll keep seeing Orpheus far into the future. And with that, I thank you.
0: You've been listening to a discussion with Dr. Mitchell Morris, professor of musicology at UCLA, about the myth and music of Orpheus and Eurydice. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Operas Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.